Well, as you know, if you have been a part of our church this year, our theme for 2021 is a journey of faith, and that actually embodies the history of our church. This is our 150th anniversary as a church, and we have had a wonderful year celebrating it, and it truly has been a journey of faith. We're about to turn our hearts toward 2022. Y'all remember our theme for 2022? Re. We're going to reconnect and revive and reflect and uh, we're going to begin the year in January and February with a season of reflection on the 23rd Psalm. And so we'll, we'll spend about eight weeks in the 23rd Psalm. The week after Christmas and the first week of the year, we are going to be engaged in what we're calling a winter break challenge where we're going to ask you as a church to come aside together and we are going to be guided by daily Bible readings, intentional time of reflection, daily guides in prayer and readings so that we can pause from the busyness of the normal activities of our lives if we can. And we're going to have reduced activities at the church for those two weeks intentionally to encourage us to spend some time reflecting together and reconnecting with the Lord and emerging out of this pandemic as we make our way into a new year. So with that said, we'll continue our Advent conversation. Our theme for Advent, as I mentioned already, is Oh Come All You Faithful. And what we're doing is, is we're spending a few weeks together theologically reflecting upon what's taught in this beautiful Christmas carol. And we are looking at the scripture that undergirds it. You know, this carol written in um, Latin originally, the four original stanzas, you have them in your hymnal, uh, translated into English. And we're going to look at that phrase this morning, uh, very God begotten, not created. That's the title of the sermon today. And uh, we're going to do some heavy lifting this morning. So are y'all ready for that? Today, we're going to um, engage in a deep theological conversation, which I think is healthy for us, and I want to just encourage us to engage in it. Sometimes, um, many Christians want Christianity to just be very simple and easy and um, something that's just not complex or mysterious, but that's not really what Christianity is. Christianity is a, is a deeply profound theological uh, religion. It's actually a relationship with the eternal God and it sometimes is shrouded in mystery and it requires something out of us to fully understand it. So this morning I'm going to walk with you on a, a pretty intense journey. So um, I think you'll realize when we get to the end uh, that it has been somewhat intense. But today let's look at this text. Speaking of mysterious texts, John 1. Um, you know, you read Luke's story of Christmas and Matthew's story of Christmas, well, John's is very different. And so with the idea of very God, begotten, not created, I want us to look at the opening of John's gospel. You know, it's our custom in our church to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel's read. So hear this gospel reading. I'll invite you to stand with me. <clears throat> Here's how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Thank you. You may be seated. So I will begin with a statement that's very familiar to you. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You know, a good bit of theology in our churches is actually taught through hymns, through psalms, through songs. This is one of the lines from a very famous hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we come to the end of that very first stanza, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. When we proclaim that, we are proclaiming a very profound truth that separates Christianity from all other major world religions. At the heart of the Christian faith is love. And this love is alive first in the person of God himself. But the unique feature of Christianity is that we believe in a triune God. Christians fundamentally are Trinitarian in our core theology. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, each fully God in absolute perfect harmony and and union in eternity. That separates us from Islam or Judaism or even various sects that have emerged through the years. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, do not embrace this understanding of a triune God. We believe in one God, three persons that comprise the Godhead. We believe that God shares his divine essence among himself. It is deep, it's profound, it's mysterious, and yet it's the truth. And so once salvation in Christ was settled in Acts 15, that was the original controversy in the early church. What about Jews and what about Gentiles and how do they together mutually experience salvation? Once the decision was made and understood that God had revealed himself in Christ for everyone, this conversation would be the next theological conversation for Christian theologians. What is the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father? And how do we understand the Trinity? So here's what I wanna do this morning. I want us to take a quick biblical um, tour and a tour of historical theology. And I want us to to get this doctrine at least firmly rooted in our minds as we approach the Christmas season. Because Christmas is the time for us as Christians to think about it because we declare so much truth about Jesus during the Christmas season. And doctrine points us toward God. Doctrine is, is not an end in itself. It points us and encourages us in our faith Uh, in God. So, are y'all ready? Okay, so let's get going. Let's start with the pre-existence of Christ. You know, here's what we believe the Bible teaches. We believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, when you talk about God in that way, you have to talk about it in terms of eternity. God is timeless. He simply exists. That's why when Moses asked him, what is your name? What was his answer? I just am. I I exist. So he is boundless in time and space. But God the Son, Christ, who made himself known, obviously, in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, he is eternal. And so 
the pre-existence of Christ is actually taught in the scripture. So let me just run through it real quickly. It won't be an exhaustive list, but let me just point you to the highlights in the scripture. John 1 that we just read, verses 1 through 5, verse 14. The word was in the beginning, the word was God, he was with God, and then the word became flesh. He appeared in human form, but he is eternal. So that means God the Son did not come into existence when Mary had her baby in Bethlehem. Jesus, the human, came into existence then, and God the Son was manifested for all to see. John 3, verse 13, Jesus himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's a reference back to the Old Testament. Uh, Mark mentioned the, the richness of the Old Testament, how it informs us this morning in the lighting of the Advent candle. Well, we look at the Old Testament and we discover that Jesus understood the Old Testament. He used that self-designation, Son of Man. John 3, verse 13, Jesus says, the Son of Man came from heaven. John 6, verse 62, Jesus said, what if the Son of Man were to ascend back to where he was before? This idea that, that he is hard to comprehend. He said, I can only imagine if you were to see me going back to where I came from. John 8, verse 14, Jesus said, I know where I came from. John 8, verse 42, Jesus said, God sent me here to you. And then in that very powerful passage, John 8, verse 58, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And obviously that was viewed as, as a blasphemous statement. He was claiming to be pre-existent. He was claiming to be divine. He was claiming to be God. What a powerful statement. In the prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. In John 17, verse five, Jesus says to the Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began. A claim of pre-existence. The apostle Paul in Colossians one, if you wanna look at it with me, in Colossians one, verse 15, Paul tries to summarize his understanding of the pre-existence of the Son and how he now has revealed the Father to us. So Colossians one, verse 15, Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's a statement about the Trinity, okay? And the, the fact that God the Son is a part of the Trinity. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's the Savior, he's the Redeemer. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What a, what a statement. <laughs> If you wanna know why we celebrate Christmas, it's because the Son of God has now appeared, manifested himself, and that invisible God that is so mysterious to us has been made known, and he is the image of the invisible God. He's the creative agent of God, and the God, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. No wonder he's the head of the church. Praise his name. Absolutely, he is worthy of our adoration. So, Texts like these, these, these deep, mysterious, profound texts, they led these early Christian theologians to grapple with and to express the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And these early Christian theologians, here's what they had to do. Almost all of them spoke and wrote in Greek. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And so these were, these were people who were very familiar with the teachings of the New Testament. And they read it in its original language. But here's what they discovered. As they tried to give expression to the Trinity, they found they needed even more vocabulary. And so they actually had to create theological terms in the Greek language to try to explain, to try to express the mysteriousness of the Trinity. And then ultimately the, the church would move westward and Latin would become the predominant language. And then once that happens, Latin becomes the theological language of the church. But in its origin, Greek was the language, and Greek is a very precise language. It's a very robust language, much more than English. And so I think it's providential that these theologians were able to grapple with these truths and give full expression to them as best they could in a language that was sturdy enough to somehow uh, hold it and harness it, if you will, its energy and its truth. So with that said, you take these powerful truths that are expressed in the New Testament about the preexistence of Christ, Here's the question that arose in the early church in the first 200 years. So what is the relationship between God the Son and God the Father? The question was, did, was there ever a time when God the Son did not exist? That was the question. In other words, is we believe God's eternal, but is God the Son eternal? Or... In, in, the, in the understanding, in the context of paganism in those days, was Jesus more like one of these superheroes of pagan religions? He was the first created one, if you will, superior to everyone else. That had great attraction for the early Christians because they emerged out of paganism, awash in these kinds of legendary mythical tales about these super gods, these superhumans rather, who were godlike and yet very human. So the question was a very profound one. So these theologians, they used the Greek language and then Latin to give theological precision to this Trinitarian faith. So here's what I wanna do real quickly. We can't do it all obviously, but I wanna give you just a brief journey through historical theology. So let's do that real quick. And here's how I wanna do it. I'm gonna do it with, with three vocabulary words and there'll be a test at the end, okay? They're all Greek words. So the first one is prosopon. When these, when these theologians tried to explain the Trinity, they decided to use this word from the Greek language, prosopon. The Greek word prosopon will be translated into Latin with the Latin word persona. And that Latin word would be translated into English as the word person. But the original word is prosopon. Prosopon means face. And it came out of the, the, the uh, theater world in, um, in Greek culture. Greek actors, whenever they participated in a play, they would wear what was called a prosopon. They would wear a face. And that face was to represent everything about the character that they were portraying. In other words, it was the manifestation of the character. It was the expression of the character. It was the character's prosopon. So Greek theologians took that word and they said, God uses the prosopon. He uses these three faces 
Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet he is still of one essence. He is still the, the, the one God, and yet he has these three distinct faces. And so that word was used to describe how God could reveal himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet still embody the fullness of the Godhead, but distinct in his representation of himself. And so that word caught on among theologians, and a great deal of conversation, and a lot of theology has been built around the understanding of the face of God. Second word in Greek, homoousios. Probably one of the most important words in Christian theology, particularly in the early church. Homoousios. Ousios means substance, essence. Homo means same. And so theologians chose to use that word, same essence. And the testimony is this. God the Son is of the same essence with God the Father. It's not a different essence. It is the same essence, the same homo. Now, there were some theologians alive in the 200s and early 300s who said, we don't like that word. They said, let's use this word, homoousios. And that word means almost the same essence. Just one little word, one little letter, Yoda, homoi. That means a shared essence, but not the same. These Orthodox theologians said, no, God the Father and God the Son share the same essence. And then maybe my favorite of the theological words in this early era in Christianity, genetos, not genetos. Genetos or non-genetos. Look at that on the screen real quick. <clears throat> you see the difference between those two words? What's the difference? One letter, but it makes all the difference in Greek. Because the first word, genetos, means begotten. Begotten. The second word means made, created. You know, you make furniture. You make uh, buildings. But beget is something different. And that word begotten doesn't even have to have time associated with it. It's more of a word about relationship than time. And so these theologians said, when you talk about the Son of God, you can talk about the Son of God with genetos, but you can't talk about him with genetos. <laughs> Pronounced the same, but spelled differently. In other words, you can't say the Son of God was made. You have to say the Son of God was begotten. And what that means is he has a dynamic, eternal relationship with the Father. He is begotten. He's eternally in relationship. He didn't come into existence in other words, you can't say there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was created. These Greek theologians said, no, you can't use that word to apply to Christ. You can't say that the Son of God, there was a time when he didn't exist. If you did, then there was a time when he was made. That's not true about him. He's eternally begotten. In other words, he's eternally in relationship with the Father. It's a way to help us try to understand the Trinity. We'll never fully grasp it. And yet it is, it's a powerful truth. So I would say this to y'all. It feels very remote to you probably this morning in 2021, sitting here in a, in a sanctuary in, in First Baptist Arlington. I can promise you it was incredibly challenging in the first couple hundred years of Christianity. Christians struggled with it. So let me just, let me just help us real quick to put this in perspective. 
if you can go back in time with me to the AD 300s, Christianity had spread from Jerusalem to Rome and all across the empire. It was now the leading religion in all the empire. It was a miracle. It had survived fierce persecution. Emperors like Decius and Diocletian did everything they could do to get rid of Christianity. They burned New Testaments. They killed Christians. Nero burned Christians at the stake. I mean, Christians were persecuted throughout the empire, but miraculously, Christianity survived. It actually thrived in those first 300 years. So finally, by the time you get to AD 311, 312, Constantine takes over the Roman Empire. And he becomes a convert to Christianity. But he makes a crucial decision. He decides that he's going to rule the Roman Empire and never live in Rome. Now that, that tells you something about his idea of Roman. Because to him, Roman was a concept, not a geographical place. And so to be Roman didn't necessarily mean you had to live in Rome. Now, that's a stretch for y'all because y'all are Texans and I know how y'all are. If somebody grew up in Oklahoma and declared themselves to be a Texan, you would say uh, no. But the Romans viewed it differently. The Romans understood to be a Roman was an idea. And you could be a Roman citizen and never actually move to Rome. Well, Constantine decided to rule the Roman Empire from a new city in the east. So if you can imagine on a map, Rome is in the west and Istanbul in the east. And so he moved his capital to Istanbul, we would call it today, and he renamed the city. You remember what he called it? Constantinople. And he made a declaration, there can be no pagan temples in Constantinople. The only houses of worship in Constantinople have to be Christian. And so he in AD 313, he issued what he called the Edict of Toleration. That meant Christianity could not be persecuted anymore. Finally, in AD 325, he recognized Christianity officially over the entire empire. Now, y'all, that, that was a huge, huge decision. Now, so let's think about how the world looked in AD 325. The church was all over the empire and it was organized around major metropolitan areas. So in every major metropolitan area, you had churches who had pastors, but you had one person who oversaw all the pastors. He was the overseer. In Greek, he was called the episkopos. We translated to English as the bishop. So just think about how that looked in 325. Are y'all still with me? Okay. So you had a bishop of DFW, you had a bishop of Houston, you had a bishop of New Orleans, you had a bishop of Los Angeles, you had a bishop of Washington DC, you had a bishop of New York, does that make sense? Oh, but in the 300s, it was actually the bishop of Milan and the bishop of Jerusalem and the bishop of Alexandria and the bishop of Antioch and the bishop of Nicomedia and the bishop of Rome. And inside all those bishoprics, if you want to call them that, there were pastors. Now here's what happened. <clears throat> Christians were trying to distinguish themselves from the pagan culture around them. They had been persecuted for so long, now they've been set free. And they can live freely in the Roman world. But they don't want to just be set free from persecution, they want to be set free from the shackles of pagan theology. So they were challenged. What do you Christians really believe? 
What do you believe about, about these, these Greek mythological gods? And so the Christians began to, to share the real truths of Christianity. And one of the challenges they had was the relationship between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. So here's, here's what happened. Alexandria in Egypt was a very influential um, community. Numerous churches. There was a man named Alexander who was the bishop of Alexandria. Doesn't that, that works, doesn't it? Makes it easy to memorize when you're studying history. But the most popular preacher, there was a televangelist in Alexandria. And his name was Arius. And he was an older man, but he was brilliant. He was one of those men who had no equal. You know what I'm talking about? He won every argument. And he was a powerful theologian. And he was a marketer, he was really smart. He took his theological teachings and he set them to music. And he used the tunes that the people sang in the marketplace and he put his theology in those tunes. In those tunes. So Bruce Shelley, who's written a wonderful uh, historical take on this, says that if you can imagine in those early 300s, you had dock workers and merchants and school children singing these little ditties they were Arius's theology set to music. And we've already discussed how you learn theology through music, right? Here was the problem. Arius was the most popular preacher in all of Alexandria, but guess what he believed about Jesus? He believed that God the Father created God the Son. He said there is just no way that I could get my mind wrapped around the fact that there was a time when God the Son didn't exist. He said, God the Son is created. Now he's the first creation, got it. He is the superhero, absolutely. He's the best human, no doubt. But he's not God. He is a created son. Does that make sense? Well, guess what happened to that, y'all? Those little tunes, his writings, his popular preaching style, it made its way across the empire. And so theologians began to respond to Arius and say, no, no, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are eternal. And Arius responded and said, no, that just doesn't make sense. Well, the word got to Constantine because there was squabbling all over the church throughout the empire. So Constantine in AD 325 said, enough. Enough. I want all the bishops to come together and figure this out. So he held the very first Southern Baptist Convention in AD 325. And he paid every preacher's way. In other words, they weren't being persecuted. They didn't have to hide out. They didn't have to sneak through town. He paid, it was an all expense paid trip. 300 bishops from all over the world. And he decided to hold the meeting in Tur what we would call Turkey today, Nicaea. Guess who didn't come? There was one very prominent bishop who refused to come because it wasn't held in his town. Guess who it was? The Bishop of Rome. He said, if you're gonna have a meeting about theology, have it in my town or you don't have it. Constantine said, thank you, I'm the emperor. We're having it in my town. So everybody came but him. So you got 300 pastors, theologians, bishop, Arius, King. And so they spend some time together. Constantine opens the assembly and says, y'all need to figure this out. I don't know if he said y'all or not, but you know, you know what I mean. 
figure this out. Here's the question. Was God the son created or is he eternal? Constantine said, figure that out. Arius was invited to preach a sermon. So Arius gave his presentation and he was a powerful preacher and he presented what he believed. However, guess what? These theologians listened and they said, no. You're popular, you are creative, but you're wrong. And Arius lost. And so at the end of the day, this group of theologians prepared what today we call the Nicene Creed. And when they voted on it, every bishop and every pastor signed it except for two, Arius and his best friend. And he was excommunicated from the church. And a new man rose to power, a, man, a young preacher named Athanasius. And he would be named the new bishop of Alexandria. And for the next 50 years, Athanasius would give leadership to the church with his powerful, rich, theological mind. Now, so let's look at the Nicene Creed. We're Baptists, we're not creedal people, so we don't do creeds on Sunday mornings. But this creed helps shape theological orthodoxy for the history of the church. So can we look at it this one? This is the original Nicene Creed. Actually, this is the English translation of it. Here's what it says. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen. Now look at this next section. This is all about Jesus, okay? This is all about the Son of God. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, that is of the same substance, usios, of the Father. Notice what they say about Jesus. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, genetos, non genetos, begotten, not made, consubstantial, homoousios, with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, both things in heaven and things on earth, who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and became man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Can we not say amen to that? Amen. That's AD 325. So a stake was driven into the ground. They also added this one sentence, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now later in 381, they would come back and fill that in. But in 325, that was enough because the conversation was about Jesus. But do you hear what they say about him? Now, okay, get your hymnal, if you're still with me, get your hymnal. Look at page 103. <clears throat> you know, in the second service, I'll have to show them what this is, but y'all know what it is in this one. Look at the second stanza, page 103. Why did we sing this this morning and where did it come from? Well, look at second stanza. Remember the Nicene Creed? What does it say about Jesus? True God of true God, light from eternal, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. What does that mean? That means he was willing to become a man. He humbled himself. Notice what it says, son of the father, begotten, not 
created. Genetos, non-genetos. So here we are in 2021 singing something this morning that was written in AD 325 by a group of really, really godly men. Praise God. Praise God he's guided the theological orthodoxy of the church that people like Arius, brilliant, didn't win the day. Theology is hard, y'all, particularly in our era. Nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants a quick two-second Instagram post answer. But you want to study theology? Well, you know what? It's going to take time. One of my favorite theological books is this book, Systematic Theology by Robert Duncan Culver. Let me read you what he says about this, this conversation. These Greek words, after he unpacks them richly in this text. He says, these terms will not appeal to everyone. <laughs> really? <clears throat> we do not live in a very reflective age. Now that is an understatement. Even the ancient Christian scholars who first employed them in theology had difficulty at first in explaining them fully to one another and in keeping them straight. The special vocabulary was nevertheless necessary to keep the church from returning to polytheism, pantheism, dualism, and Judaism in its doctrine, even while using scriptural words and phrases in sermons, hymns, and prayers. They are no less necessary in our age of impatience. So I would say to me and you this morning, Christians, let's be willing to think deeply, live counterculturally to our era, and let's give time to true theological reflection because you know what? It matters. Our eternity is at stake. It matters what you believe. It matters what we say, the terms that we use about God because it communicates something about him. And so in our age of uh, era of impatience, as Culver says, let's you and I swim upstream and give God a chance to instruct us and teach us in the deeper things of God and tie ourselves to the scripture and the language that has served the church so well. And then what's our response? You know what our response is? Oh, come, let us adore him. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we, first of all, we just want to thank you for such deep and profound truth. My goodness, <laughs> thank you, Lord, that you are shrouded in mystery. We don't understand everything there is to know about you. If that were true, you wouldn't be God. And so thank you that you are a God who on the one hand is transcendent and beyond us, and your ways are not our ways, and yet on the other hand, you've made yourself known through a virgin's womb and a little baby. Wow, thank you so much. So Lord, enrich our theology so that we might truly celebrate Christmas and communicate its truth to a world that's hungry for something that really matters. And this does. And we love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.